Mac Power Users, episode 653, Workflows with Chris Christensen. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I am joined by my pal and yours, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you doing today, Stephen? I'm great, David. How are you? I am excellent. I am well-rested, had a great vacation, ready to go take on the world. And uh, we have a guest today. Welcome to the show, Chris Christensen. Thanks so much. Well, Chris, I guess I shouldn't say welcome to the show. You've been here before, but it's been a long time. It's it's certainly predates Stephen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Chris is um, a programmer or an application developer and web developer by trade, but also runs the Amateur Traveler podcast and does a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, he's had stints with various companies over the years, building great web apps for them. Uh, he's done some work with a little fruit company called Apple in the past, and uh, we're going to talk about that later today. In fact, on more power users today, uh, I didn't realize, Chris, until we were doing a pre-interview, that you're the guy who wrote the the mail app for the Newton. And as soon as I heard that, I'm like, okay, that is going to be today's more power users because <laughs> uh, we're going to have to re- we're going to physically restrain Stephen when we get to that. I think. <laughs> Yeah, I still have a business card here someplace with the uh, Newton Mailman as the title. That's a good job title. Hey, I used that mail client in college. Check my dot .mac email. So uh, we can we can talk about that in uh, more power it users. It wouldn't be that one. So the the first version of the mail, we can talk about this in more power users, only connected to AOL oh. or AOL-based services like eWorld. It's, it's good to know. Because back then, that was the internet. It's true. <laughs> well, um Chris has got a, a storied past and um, has done a lot of interesting stuff uh, for the Mac community over the years. Um, but but I want to talk today to Chris about um, the, some of the big bigger topics we're going to talk about is web development. I feel like this is something we've wanted to cover on the show for a while. Um, you know, Chris, you know, pays for his shoes making apps for the web. And there's a lot to that. And we're going to talk about what's involved with it. But I also want to talk about it for power users just to understand what is the underlying technologies you know why does our battery die with certain web apps and (laughs) not with others and like kind of let's give everybody a little bit of a foundational knowledge and who better to teach us that than someone who actually makes their living making these things so that's one of the main reasons i want to have you on chris but also you've got some great content creation stuff you're doing with amateur traveler and a bunch of other cool ideas so i'm really looking forward to today's show before we get started, Stephen, do we have any uh, announcements? I think we're pretty good today. Yeah, I think so. I just wanted to to thank everybody who backed the Kickstarter. It's been closed for a little over a week now and super happy with how it ended up. I've gotten a few people email me or send me notes asking if they missed the Kickstarter, if they could still get their hands on a calendar. And the answer is yes. I'll have a limited number for like outright sale later this year. And so keep uh, keep an eye out for that. I'll announce it in a blog post on 512 Pixels, probably in October. Uh, but there will be uh, some available. But overall, uh, again, just thank you if you supported it. I'm super pleased with with how it's gone. Yeah. Well, that, that was, uh, I, I have seen, I get these random pictures from Steve and they're <laughs> getting taken for the calendar and everybody who bought them, you guys are in for some real treats. I think even, you know, maybe Chris will recognize a few of those pictures. I don't know. I, I we'll think see. I may have had a few of those products. 
So, Chris, uh, you uh, are found at AmateurTraveler.com. That's uh, the website for your podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the po- the travel podcast that actually talks about traveling places and not how to get the best deal on mileage and points. I kind of like that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then on Twitter, you're Chris2x. But let's talk a little bit about kind of your journey. How did you first get into technology and kind of what led you down the path? Well, technology uh, actually was because my best friend in high school in junior year, his rich aunt gave him an Apple II. And so I learned to program on an Apple II uh, because of, you know, somebody's rich aunt and uh, found that programming was something that I really enjoyed doing. And so I've been a programmer now ever since. And as a uh, paid, you know, position for last 41 years, I guess now. And that's yeah. how that led me into technology. And actually technology led me into podcasting because the first podcast that I started listening to was Leo Laporte's This Week in Tech. Yeah. And so it was that that led me into, hey, I like this podcasting stuff and and thought about doing a Mac podcast. But, you know, Adam Christensen was already around and and who needs two Mac podcasts? Yeah. Um, <laughs> was, this yeah. was honestly what I thought at the time. <laughs> yeah. Katie and I heard the same thing when we started. Nobody needs another podcast. It's okay. <laughs> but your original um, programming position, it, it's hard, you know, as an older guy, I always want to call them programmers, right? Because that's. Programmer the, works. Yeah. Yeah. But, but your original positions were application development. You predate the web in essence. And um, yeah. And, and I, so I know we're going to talk later about, you know, you working on the Newton, but it, what, was that what you're hired for at Apple or did you do other stuff yes. there? No, okay. I was, I was hired for that at Apple. I had actually been at a pen based computing company before the Newton, um, in the great pen scare of the late eighties, early nineties. I was at a company called Momenta, uh, back when, you know, pundits were writing about the keyboard was going away and we were all going to use pens. Um, it t- turns out when people write about it, it's not always true. Um, yeah. <laughs> which was an interesting lesson for me. But, um, and that, you know, we put a mag, we put a computer on the front of business computer or PC computing magazine with the perfect computer question mark and PC magazine in Germany and, you know, all of the, the rags and, and sold our first computer to Bill Gates as the first computer to run windows for pen computing. And then I wow. worked on a small talk environment, um, for a cu- set of custom apps for that computer and, you know, in three years, we ran out of $40 million and, and went out of business, uh, made Byte Magazine's biggest, 20 biggest all-time failures list, which oh, well. was a hard list to get onto. You you have to have some promise and then fail. But, uh, no, I've spent about 22 years at startup companies. That one, the the most spectacular failure. And the other ones, I think, are all still around. But, but I mean, you know, you're right to get the, of the 20 20- biggest failures in technology because every day there's another product coming out. So right, I'm, right. You know, well, we, I mean, we made it up there with the Osborne computer and the Apple three, uh, ooh. at the time before bite themselves <laughs> failed. <laughs> yeah. so, That's quite the company. Uh, yeah, man. they've stayed a little more, uh, a little more, uh, well known than we were, but yeah, but yeah, but, but that's what we call in the business irony. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I'm looking at this Momenta. It's kind of a, a cute little computer, and uh, you can definitely see the age. It looks like the the pen had a cord 
sticking out the back of it. Yeah, it was a resistive technology. Uh, so unlike you guys were talking on writing on glass uh, recently on the show, this one was a technology where you actually had the glass was etched with a copper um, substrate. And so it actually had more of a paper feel, be, but it, you basically were connecting a circuit, but then it, it would also wear off over time. So there's some disadvantages to that technology and, you know, you have to have a cord to make it work. Yeah. Well, we are going to, we're going to talk later today about tablets and writing because of your unique experience, but, but you went there, you went to Apple. Um, uh, eventually Apple lost interest in the Newton and you left Apple and then you went off and did well, it. Apple, Apple was hemorrhaging cash and had to close okay. down the <laughs> Newton and also eWorld, which, uh, I was, I, who hired me into Apple was, I worked on the eWorld application and then Newton as part of that. See, I always thought I had always heard it that Steve Jobs was the one who killed the Newton when he came back. But so was I it think dead he before? Finished killing it, but there were big layoffs before he came back, and then eWorld was shuttered before that. But that that Q four of what it would have been ninety five, Apple lost about seven hundred million dollars, if I'm remembering correctly. So I mean, it was it was in danger of going out of business. Yeah. Um, and so they shut down the things that were not core to the business as they needed to. I mean, I've never held it as anything personal. So he may have also had personal things against the Newton. It was a Scully uh, sort of project, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. He he needed to get rid of anything that wasn't the core business, as well as, you know, half the machines that they were making. Right. We all know yeah. how he rationalized the the number of computers they're working on. And I was there in the, I was there in the unrational days. I worked for everybody, but Steve Jobs, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the dark rough, years, as we say, rough times, rough times. It's, it's gotta be hard working for a company where, you know, the newspapers and computer magazines are predicting your demise every other week. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember yeah. thinking that much about that. We had plenty to do. So yeah, good. But then at some point you got interest in programming for the web. When, when did that start up? Uh, so the first, actually the first application I did, I can't even remember what the name of it was, but it was at Apple. We launched when I was still at uh, eWorld, a small application that was running on literally, I think it was running on SEs in the back end, sitting in a data center someplace. And, and, uh, we had, uh, an application that was a portal kind of app. Um, back when like AltaVista and some of those things were rolling out new portals and this is a cool technology. And so I was actually still at Apple when I started doing web programming and then I followed my, the head of eWorld, um, uh, Peter Friedman, who is the head of the Apple online services out the door to a startup company where I was for 14 years working on uh, web-based community applications, a, a system called Talk City at first. And then we were doing a running community for other companies, a, a great variety of companies, the NBA, the WNBA, HBO, uh, web TV, Microsoft. Um, oh, just, I've got a great uh, demo slide of uh, all the different logos of companies I work with doing web-based things uh, at first doing chat and community-based things. And then later on doing a lot of discussion board work. So you were, you know, you're old enough to have started programming before the web and the application model you've, successfully mm -hmm. created applications. What is it about the web that attracted you? As someone who, so I was on the internet before the web. Um, sure. A lot of people don't remember, you know, back in the days of if, you know, FTP and ways and all the other protocols that we used Bulletin before boards. the web. 
yeah. bulletin boards. I actually got my job at Apple through a first class bulletin board dial in software that my, my manager at Apple was running. So yeah, I was looking for the web before the web. Uh, in fact, I w- when I was at HP, which was the first job out of school for about five years, uh, we had a group there that was looking at hypertext and, you know, what was going to happen with hypertext. And so, you know, when, when hypercard first happened, it's like, oh, hey, here's, here's something that we've been looking for. And then when the web happened, it's like, oh yeah, I know what this is. And I know how this can be used. Of course, you know, I thought I did, but it's been even more useful than that. So so I fell in love with the web before the web. <laughs> and so it wasn't that hard then to say, hey, I want to learn more about this kind of technology. Um, and then had the opportunity to go off and, you know, be the EVP of engineering and operations for a web-based company, a dot-com company for uh, 14 years. So um, through ups and downs, as one might imagine, we went to, you know, started with four employees and got up to 256 and then went down to 15 when the dot-com bubble burst and then back up to I don't know where they are these days, 60, 80 employees or so. They're still around. Yeah. It's, um, well, you've, you've kind of been on the journey and, uh, that, that's so <laughs> great, you know, and what are you doing currently? So I left my, um, I was doing consulting for about six years so I could have more time to travel for amateur traveler, uh, working at a variety of companies, including timeout and, uh, TripAdvisor uh, were probably the two best knowns and a couple of smaller startup companies. And then I, my, uh, somebody I worked with at four other companies before that, um, was starting a new startup company called Bodeswell that was doing financial planning software. And so I joined that about a year before the pandemic. Uh, it cut it back on my travel, but it turned out to be nice to have a full-time job sitting in my office here at home. Yeah. I was working from home, you know, long before it was cool. Um, and so I've been doing that for the last three years. Uh, last year, we actually um, launched for American Express uh, My Financial Plan, which was our software with their brand uh, so that their users were coming in and using our financial planning software and they liked it and they bought us. So in between actually pitching this show and uh, being on the show, I've changed my employer and I went from a six-person company to a 60,000-person company and, and I work for American Express. Well, you know, Chris, you've had quite a journey, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, what I love about that is like, you know, you're old enough to have been there at the beginning with the Apple II. You've really seen this industry mature and evolve over the course of your career. Um, any insight you have over the computer industry as a whole from that journey? Well, I don't know if we can ever say that the computer industry has matured based on the he- headlines I read, but, um, yeah, I tell people I used to work on the web when it was entirely steam driven but, yeah. um, it is, you know, I think it's a lot of fun. My, my kids occasionally get jaded by the news and, and things like that. And I understand why they do, but this is a pretty, if you're a nerd, this is a pretty amazing time to live when you've got, you know, this amazing tool in your pocket and you're, you know, sitting in front of your M1 laptop and, you know, uh, you've got the web that you can look up answers, you know, remember when you had to just go to the encyclopedia world book uh, when you were trying to settle the argument at dinner time. Uh, at least that was the way it was in my house. Uh, it's a pretty cool time. And I've just, you know, thoroughly enjoyed that ride. And in terms of what the web is becoming, has become, uh, it's been pretty, pretty darn cool. I distinctly remember in the probably late eighties logging and dialing into somewhere. It wasn't like AOL. It wasn't one of the like big systems 
mm-hmm. it was the first time I kind of found my way onto the internet of connected computers, not necessarily the web and the screen showing up and saying, would you like news about sports or politics or, and you, you'd press the number for whatever you wanted and the actual news would start showing up on your screen. And I just thought that I had unlocked the key to the world. Well, I remember the first time I booked my own air ticket uh, before the web on, you know, AOL when they had, uh, what was it, Easy Saber and things like that. And it yeah. was just amazing that you could do this yourself. You didn't have to talk to a travel agent or you didn't have to call anybody. And of course, now, you know, that's just so routine. The, the other thing that's interesting about your career, and I want to come back to this later, is that, you know, uh, you started at a time where one programmer or application developer would kind of, you know, roll the whole enchilada. And now things have gotten so much more specialized. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, yes and no. Things have gotten more specialized, but they also, when we're building software these days, especially web-based software, we we stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, we, you know, six of us built a company that American Express bought, and it's still, I find that amazing. Mm-hmm. But of course, we didn't build the software all the way down to the bits. Um, we built on top of technologies that are out there that are freely available for people to use. So we, you know, we were using React on the front end, uh, which is a technology that I think React came from uh, Facebook, as I recall. Um, but, you know, I don't even know because everybody uses it these days and we're using, you know, Kotlin on the back end, which is freely available. You can go buy IntelliJ and these guys made up their own back end language and, you know, using JavaScript or TypeScript, which is a TypeScript version of that, um, and do you remember the original name of JavaScript when it first came out by Netscape way back in the nineties? I do uh, not. It was LiveScript, but Java was getting a lot of press, and so they renamed it. Um, <laughs> so you know, it's been around for a while. And but because you're not building things from scratch, you can build more interesting things in a quicker period of time. And so a small team is easier i think these days in the software range especially in the in the web-based software area you know i think games i think are still more difficult but even there you've got uh you know when you're doing application programming you've got the the you know engines and things like that that are giving you all your geometry and things like that now where you used to have do that from scratch but a lot of the web-based stuff is is built on you know you're standing on the shoulders of giants so makes it a lot easier to do a so like you know i mentioned you know being at momenta and spending you know 40 million dollars and then going out of business but you can do a bootstrapped you know web-based company hire a few engineers and and not have to spend tens of millions of dollars to get a product out um, which is why you get so much more innovation now it's it's easier because of the web to run a company you know, you can get your services for payroll, for instance, without having to work with, you know, ADP and some of the giants that took all your time, or you can get your benefits through, you know, some other website or all of those sort of things. So it's, it's easier to start a business now than it used to be. And it's easier to, to make software. The only thing is you just, if you're going to get into this business, you have to just be willing to constantly learn um, because everything you learned this year will be obsolete in a couple months. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that in terms of of Apple and at your time there, you know, one thing amongst many that Apple struggled with was the rise of the web. And 
they didn't they struggled for a long time on the software front and they had weirdo networking and then the iMac comes along and, and Apple's like, hey, this this Mac is designed to get you on the internet, even though it was still like Mac OS 8.5 or 6 or whatever it came with. And and even though it was more of kind of the same as they worked right. their way towards the modern era. When you, you know, think about your time at Apple then and what you've learned in the years since, like it seems to me as someone who's covered this industry for a long time, but not like I'm not a developer, haven't worked at a big tech company myself, is that you see these companies sometimes struggle to uh, to see what's coming. And sometimes like everyone else in the room can't see it except the company. Have you have you been in those situations before? Well, it, yeah. So I was there when actually I worked on eWorld 1.1. I was in charge of the client. And that is, as far as I know, the first time that Apple shipped an internet browser um, was as part of eWorld. We shipped an internet browser that was coming from uh, AOL because eWorld was AOL technology based. Um, a lot of people don't know that. But on the other hand, AOL was Apple technology based because it was developed as a as a joint project between quantum computing in uh, Vienna, Virginia and Apple. Uh, it was going to be Apple Link Personal Edition because Apple had a, a, a program called Personal um, – that was called Apple Link, and it was how they ran a lot of their developer, uh, sorry, the developer, their dealer networks and things like that. And it was run by a GE Information Systems, uh, the people who ran CompuServe, very old technology. And they'd been trying many times to update it. And one of the first times they tried that, they were ready to ship this Apple Link personal edition. And then somebody at Apple, and I, this was before my time, backed out. I had to actually pay... AOL a lot of money to get back the Apple logo, you know, to so they would not use the Apple logo on this product. Wow. And that's the money they used to send you all the CDs that they were sending you back in the 80s was the money from Apple. But then when I was there, we went back to them and uh, actually re-licensed the software that, you know, Apple had helped build and came out with this version. But I remember when I was there, we're, we're going out with this, this web browser. It was a web shark. That's something that AOL had bought. It was a piece of crap. <laughs> it was not a good piece of software. And we would, we would record bugs and they were like, yeah, yeah, we know that we're going to be testing it in the big lab. And what that really meant was we need to get a web browser out there because we, this internet has, has suddenly come into being and we really need to get there really quick and we're going to ship it. And we know that it's got bugs in it. So, you know, everybody was scrambling at that point. But I mean, the other thing that was happening at the same point is we were used to paying, you know, $5, $10 an hour for connectivity. And that was about the same time that the your ISP basically started charging you a flat fee. And that's mm-hmm. when the internet really was taking off was when that was happening. I feel like my childhood is is littered in those free two hours on AOL CDs, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and they made their money from the people who bought an account and used it constantly. And those would be the people in the chat rooms, for instance, like we were later on running, but also those who bought it and didn't use it at all. And that those were the two places where they made money. The people who used it for for two hours, you know, or whatever you got with your your monthly subscription, they actually lost money on. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by SaneBox. Go to SaneBox.com slash MPU and you'll receive a $25 credit on any plan. We all have just 
too much email. And it's hard to know what's important and what can wait until later. And that's where Sanebox comes in because it learns what email is actually important to you and then what isn't, saving you hours during the work week. And it works with all kinds of email programs and services. You don't have to have a special app or use their, you know, weird email system. It works basically everywhere. I've got hooked up to a couple of Google accounts and it works fantastically there. And Sanebox gives me great email filtering. They have all these different folders you can set up. Sane later keeps your inbox clean with only what really matters and other stuff is safe for later for you to deal with on your own time. My favorite folder is the Sane black hole. You can drag a message into it and you'll never hear from the sender again. You can snooze and set reminders as well. So if your receiver doesn't reply or you don't want to see an email until Monday morning when you get back to the office, that's all really easy to do. And Samebox is more than just filtering. You can use it to move attachments to Dropbox and other cloud services and free up precious space on your email account. Samebox has various pricing plans starting as low as about $4 a month. Check it out with a 14-day free trial at sanebox.com slash MPU, and you'll receive a $25 credit on any plan. Two-thirds of MPU listeners that try Samebox end up subscribing. I know I couldn't deal with my email without it. I think you're going to love it. Once again, that's sanebox.com slash MPU. Chris, so earlier you mentioned an M1 Mac, so you have now summoned the gods of the Apple Silicon. <laughs> uh, we need to talk about this. I mean, here's here's a guy who who worked on you know uh, some very old hardware back in the day. But yeah. now, w- what do you think of what Apple's doing with the modern hard- hardware, and how much of it have you bought? Old hardware that ran on ARM. I think we should also maybe tell that story because uh, right, yeah, a lot of people don't know that Apple's introduction into ARM was the Newton. Um, the one thing that the lasting thing that came out of the Newton was um, Apple's love for the ARM architecture, and they bought uh, into that company in that process. and And that is probably the number one thing that made that product pay off, even if it's a product that they canceled. We'll get into the Newton later, but even just it really is interesting to me. I don't. I've never viewed the Newton as like a failure in that sense. You know, like an utter mm-hmm. failure. I feel like. It certainly helped Apple think about and build on technologies that, you know, later show up in the most successful consumer product in the history of humankind. So you really have to look (laughs) at it in that regard, I think. Mm -hmm. And Apple ended up selling their stake in ARM for like almost a billion dollars. So it. Even though they don't yeah, own they, it now, yeah, they I think still they spent <laughs> they made some money forty, sixty million, something like that, on the Newton. But they they well made it back on their investment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So current Apple. So Silicon. what do I think of what they're doing? I love them. Some of the best computers they've ever made. Um, I think my favorite computers in the Apple. My first computer was an Apple uh, Mac Plus, the first one that I owned. Uh, well, I went from an Apple IIe, which my wife won in a uh, Crest back-to-school sweepstakes when Ooh. we were in college. But uh, I sold that and bought an, uh, a Mac Plus after we graduated and have been programming on the Mac since then. I used to do some shareware programs, uh, one called Columns and one called Cribbage uh, back in the day. But, um, I, you know, my favorites of all time probably with Mac hardware would be the Duo was was pretty awesome. The I still love the uh, the MacBook Air. 
uh, is still an amazing piece of hardware. And, and now I'm sitting in front of my MacBook Pro and, you know, you'll get my M1 Mac when you pry it out of my cold dead hands. Yeah. I mean, you were telling me that, you know, when you had the big acquisition, the company had bought you a, a computer, you immediately went out and bought one for yourself when, you know, you lost the company computer. And right. I think that is just, that's the thing with the Apple Silicon. Once you use it, you really cannot go back to Intel. No, my wife got my old uh, Intel uh, MacBook Air because it works for her, but uh, I needed to go on an M1. Yeah, so I own a 13-inch M1, and then for work, I use a 16-inch uh, MacBook Pro, which um, at the newer model, which is a lovely computer, gorgeous screen, little too heavy for me. Well, a lot too heavy for me as someone who uh, you know has to put often now the two laptops in my backpack when I'm traveling. Uh, that's uh, That gets a bit heavy. But I, you know, work for a company that is in a banking industry and is highly regulated. And so that machine is pretty locked down in terms of uh, yeah. security, which it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You So you got the 13-inch Mac, M1 13-inch MacBook Pro. So that's yep. the, it's basically the souped up MacBook Air. Right. What were the, what were the considerations for you in choosing between those two? I probably would have been fine with the Air. Uh, the, I think the Air is a gorgeous machine, but I was on the the Pro, and it was just like you know it it works really great for what I'm trying to do for programming, for podcasting, for blogging, and all those sorts of things. So it was just easier to just say, let me replace that one with this one. Yeah, and, and so the new M2 MacBook 13 inch MacBook Pro came out, and where everybody was pretty okay with the the m1 version with the m2 one it seems like in general people are um cranky that it exists you know because <laughs> and and we so we talked about in the show in fact we were in the room with apple when we said man i'm not really sure why this computer is here right remember steve i, I remember distinctly looking at you and thinking there's like six people from apple in the room while we're saying this <laughs> none of know. them made that decision it's fine yeah yeah, and uh, but but then after we aired that show, I actually heard from quite a few listeners that are Touch Bar fans or for various reasons still want that computer. I use the Touch Bar, but I could give it up. It's not the feature that I need. I I actually like the ports that they put back in the newer computers. You know, putting back in the the basically the ability to put in a memory card for my camera when I do yeah. use a camera is something that was you know very nice to have. But, um, you know, gave that up. I don't have that on this one, but. Yeah. The, uh, do you do any development work on it? So I still do some of my own development. So when you're a software developer, <laughs> so just, just to put this in concept, um, what, what it's like living with a software developer. So, uh, one example I thought of is about 20 years ago, my son was having birthday parties and I wanted to be the cool dad, right. Who did the yeah. cool scavenger hunt birthday parties. And so when you're a web developer and you're doing the scavenger on birthday parties, one of the clues for them, for instance, was a, a web address. And they were old enough to know what a web address was. And so they went on. It was like Amazon.com. They went on Amazon.com. And there on the Amazon.com front page, you know, and the browser said Amazon.com, there was a picture of my son. And, you know, because... I had written a uh, proxy server and installed it on that particular browser. <laughs> so it, it wasn't really amazon.com, but yeah, it yeah. basically said it was amazon.com. And, you know, there were a couple of other tricks like that in there. So, you know, when you're a developer, you know, I wrote my own CRM system, not because it made sense to do, but you're a man with a hammer and uh, 
So there's some danger that you're uh, going to do that. But I did write some software that I'm probably going to close down here. But it's when I went to contract full time, I wrote a program called um, bloggerbridge.com that was for uh, bloggers and companies to connect, especially in the travel space that I've been selling now since 2013. Uh, but really got clobbered by the pandemic, as one might imagine, uh, when nobody really wanted to connect with anybody and wanted anybody to travel to the destination because you couldn't. So yeah, so yeah, so I still do some development in in the on my personal laptop as well. Wrote my own uh, program to manage my tweets and things like that. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And then are you uh, you're an iPhone guy too? And I'm an iPhone guy. It's, it's almost always, you know, playing some podcast, uh, cause I am first and foremost a podcast junkie. Um, so, you know, regular listener of your show, just first time caller, but, um, you know, and it's mostly, mostly a consumption device, I'd say, and mostly audio, uh, for me. What, what's your uh, podcast app of choice? I'm a, I'm a downcast user. Um, it's a good one. Nothing against some of the other ones, but uh, it's worked very well for me. And it does support the um, the MP3 versions with the chapters and the mm-hmm. the Amateur Traveler. When it comes out, every thing we're talking about has a picture of what we're talking about. And so, if you're on Downcast and you know a few other of the applications, you can see what the destination is that we're talking about, whether it's that castle or that museum or whatever. And then there's a link to that specific content which takes a lot of time to put in as a podcaster. I don't recommend that other people do it, but <laughs> I've been doing it since um, I think two episodes after Adam Christensen started doing it in 2005. So I think the first five episodes of the amateur traveler, I'm, I'm at episode eight, 13 is coming out this week. The first five versions didn't have, yeah, it's 17 years old, 17, 17 and a, and a little change. Yeah. I've been using uh, forecast by our friend Marco Armit. Yeah. for mm-hmm. for that and it it does make it easier but anytime you do chapters we do it at a bunch of relay shows but it, it is an extra bit of work but i think it's worth it i think especially for your use case where you want to show people what you're talking about and they may not be in a position where they can open the app and scroll through the show notes but it can just be on their lock screen that's a fantastic uh use for yeah, it. Some people tell me they'll listen in the car and then they'll come back and, you know, scroll through the pictures or th- something like that. And not all people, you know, have an app that they can use it. Not all people know about it. Um, not all people use it, but um, just enough do and enough of my patrons use it that I've they keep doing it. Even though my wife tells me I am nuts, uh, which of course I am. Um, my, I do, uh, I also do a faith-based podcast, uh, the Bible study podcast, which is only so- 16 years old. That one does not have chapters and links because Um, there's, there's less need for that. And then I used to do two other podcasts, but you know, uh, something had to give at some point. So that's your, your 16 year old is your baby podcast. That's right. (laughs) Well, I, I did uh, this week in travel for about 10 years before I opted out. And then I did a couple years of, uh, passport travel marketing and PR podcast. Um, you can tell I got much better at naming podcasts, uh, based on SEO than when I did amateur traveler. (laughs) Although I, I really like amateur traveler. That's a great show, and I, I feel like you you, oh, you found it. You know, do you use the iPhone? I guess we'll talk about later for your content creation. But which mm-hmm. iPhone do you use? Uh, I'm on a 13, I think. Sure. Uh, the the <laughs> I turned it off. <laughs> I turned it back on and, and checked, but uh, I don't remember the top of my head. I believe that's the one I'm on right now. And then uh, iPad guy, uh, iPad Mini. 
iPad mini yeah. primarily for consumption. So if I'm my iPad mini, I'm, I'm playing something from my, uh, TiVo, you with the TiVo app, if I'm on vacation or I'm playing, uh, uh, some game or something like that, some strategy game, uh, more likely, um, because I'm a, a board gamer when I can find you know, people to play with me, but uh, when not, I'm usually on my iPad mini. So, uh, you know, I wake up the iPad mini is the device next to the bed that I'm using for checking email and, and news and such, but I don't do a lot of creation on it. Except sometimes when I'm traveling, I will bring the the keyboard, the little tiny keyboard, because in the airplane seat, if I'm working on a blog post, um, that's something that, you know, fits in a, in a tray <laughs> in the, uh, in the airplane seat better than even the small Mac. So as someone who has been on Apple hardware since the Apple II, what's your general impression of Apple hardware at this point in time? How are they doing? Oh, I'm, I think they're making some of the best hardware they've ever made. Um, no, I think they're doing a real nice job. Having lived through the, you know, era, the era of the, let's see, I'd had an LC, I had a Quadra, I had the uh, the Mac laptop that was on, oh, what was it? Um, the black one that was on the movie. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank oh, completely. Yeah, the, um, it was in yeah, Mich- that's the one. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. Thank you. Yeah, like the five hundred or five thousand somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah, had, had duos, had power books, had. Uh, I used to run Apple, uh, Amateur Traveler for the first three months on an old forty megahertz uh, Apple uh, in my office uh, before wow. I started hosting things. So, yeah, I had a lot of Macs over the years. I, I get it. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Go to textexpander.com slash MPU to learn more and sign up and get 20% off your first year. TextExpander is the original sponsor of the Mac Power Users. With TextExpander, you can get your team communicating faster so they can focus on what's most important and get your team's knowledge at their fingertips. Get your whole team on the same page by getting information out of silos and into the hands of everyone that needs to use it. You can share your team's knowledge across departments so your team is sending a unified message to your customers and isn't spending time reinventing the wheel. Here's how it works. First, you store it. You keep your company's most used emails, phrases, messaging, URLs, and more right within TextExpander. Then you share it. You get your whole team access to all the content they need to use every day. You can even organize it by department and then expand it. You can deploy the content you need with just a few keystrokes on any device across any apps you use. It's really that easy. Text Expander is available on the Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad, and show listeners get 20% off their first year. To learn more, just go to textexpander.com slash MPU to learn more and sign up. Our thanks to Text Expander for all of their support of the Mac Power users. We we spoke uh, earlier a bit about your uh, your programming background, and uh, I, I wanted to kind of pivot that into a discussion of web apps as they as they stand today. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure when when you started, and definitely my earliest memories of getting on the internet, like it was mostly a kind of a one way thing, right? I'm reading someone's blog or looking at their web page or looking at their photos. And then if you're reading their blog, you were ahead of your time. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's true. Um, uh, If you're older than me, you know, reading their, their posts on the bulletin board. Uh, But now it's, it's hard to draw the line sometimes between what's a web app and what's 
native. And of course, things like Electron really blur those lines. But I mean, you, you've had a front row seat to this, this change over the years. Uh, how did we get to where we are now where these web apps can offer really like rich and, and pretty complex functionality uh, in a way that, again, like I mean, there's a whole OS that's just <laughs> based on the Chrome browser. How did, how did we get here? In steps uh, is the is the real answer to that. I mean, if you go back, so I don't know if everybody has done it, but it, if you are not a web programmer, um, you can install the developer tools for free inside your Chrome, inside your Safari, and you can look at the source code for any web page that you're on. And when I say the source code, I mean the HTML. Uh, then you can also get access to the to the JavaScript if they're using JavaScript and things like that. And that is, and that is, you know, the source code for the internet. I mean, that is still out there, and it's still the way it was in some ways ever since you know back in the days of Mosaic and Netscape and and things like that. But then things happen sort of incrementally. You know, one is we got more we got more bandwidth. It, we, you know, we can do more. We can have larger web pages. They can have more functionality. So that just changed over time, just because of Moore's law and a lot of things are going on there. But the other thing is then you know when their first web pages came out, you know HTML 1.0, um, it was very simple. You can see an HTML web point you know page and kind of recognize it for that. Um, or, you know, there's still a few companies who write as if that, that were still the case, but it didn't have any style. For instance, it didn't have style sheets. Those came later on and the style sheets, um, if you, you know, get those developer tools, you can play with CSS, the, uh, the cascading style sheets, which is why, you know, we're, you and I are looking at the workflow here, which is a web-based app. And I'm seeing we're in topic three and it's red. And if I, if I, right click on that or control click on the Mac and look at that from the developer tools, I can see why that is red. And it's basically defined because of there's some style that is correspondent with that. Um, and the style sheets, you know, added a level of richness as well as, you know, when we say the bandwidth made a difference, all of, if you go back and look at really old web pages, you know, little tiny photos, right? Because, we didn't have we were over modems when we were first using the web mm-hmm. yeah and you still watch them load even yeah. in the small ones yeah <laughs> and so you know the ability to put in videos you couldn't have done you know netflix knew what they wanted to do is my understanding that they knew that they wanted to get to web streaming but they didn't have the bandwidth they didn't have the capability yet when they started so they started with the dvds but they had an eye towards that's where we wanted to go is this, the way that I've heard the story. I wasn't there, but you know, the, uh, so some of those sets of things has happened where you get, you know, faster computers, faster connections, especially, and then some additional web technologies. I mean, you know, HTML 5.0 does more things that 1.0 didn't do that allow us to have more interactions and things. And so, and so even though we're still, you know, a lot of the times when we're doing interactive programming on your browser, because your browser is running programs, uh, typically JavaScript programs, you know, that's the same JavaScript that goes back to LiveScript back to the 1990s, but it's, you know, it's been updated, it's been more modernized, but also you just have more capability. You can run things faster. We, you know, when they, every time they announce a new version of Safari, one of the things they talk about is how fast does it run JavaScript? 
because so many websites now are actually running and downloading programs on your computer that are, you know, then running while they're there. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the web has gotten much more interactive is you can get more capabilities for that. When I talk about we're using React, React is a JavaScript-based front-end engine that you basically get a, a big chunk of code downloads and then you're in an application. Uh, it's not necessarily doing the same kind of back and forth that you usually do as you switch from one, one web page to another. You're just going to a different place in the JavaScript, if you will. And the lines are just blurred a lot more. The lines are blurred more. And you can then do things like React Native and you can actually make that into an application or or things like that. It will. And the other thing that changed is our, our first version, you know, I mentioned being at Bodeswell, it was doing financial planning app, our first version of our application the back end for it was also JavaScript or TypeScript, the a more modern JavaScript. And so, you know, you can do with just knowing one language, you can now also do on the back end, we were doing database access and we were doing APIs, um, application programmer interfaces, which is how computers talk to each other, how programs talk to each other. With just, you know, one one language, you can do both. And a lot of companies do that. We we moved off of that just because it wasn't as performant as some other languages like Kotlin, which we use, which is a, a Java-based language. But, you know, the, the capability of the computers getting faster and the technology and the bandwidth and all that kind of stuff has, has enabled people like me to do more cool stuff. But the one thing we should say with the Mac, there was an interesting moment much more before the the M1, and that was when OS X came out. And I think when OS X came out, I had actually, you know, left Apple, and our my manager had required us to use Windows machines because all our users were going to be on Windows. And so for a while, I was you know doing Windows program, or it wasn't a Windows program; I was doing web programming, but I was on a on a Windows machine. But what we started to see a change in Silicon Valley, where I live in terms of everybody carrying around a Mac was when OS 10 came out because OS 10 is a Unix machine and we host most websites on Unix machines. And so the fact that I had this portable Unix machine with me, uh, you know, I was someone who had been a Unix programmer since 1983, 84. And, you know, I've been a Mac programmer for a while. And the first time somebody showed me in a Mac and it's like, you know, there's a Mac and, you know, cool, that looks great. And then they opened up a terminal window that was seeing the underlying belly of the beast and it was Unix. It just, it broke my head. It, mm-hmm. it really hurt to see this inside of that. It didn't make sense at first, but, you know, I take advantage of that all the time. You know, the number one program I'm running, I'm running usually four terminal programs at a time while I'm working because I'm running all of the programs that will eventually be out there on AWS, you know, running our application, I'm running them on my laptop. Um, and they run fine and smoothly and, and seamlessly because it's, it's very similar technologies. And so I'm running the front end and the back end, you know, and the database and all of those things here, you know, on my M1 Mac. Um, and so when OS 10 happened, it really got a bump in terms of web development, making the Mac the definitive machine. Because it was just harder at that point to to develop on Windows machines, unless you were doing a Windows stack, unless you were actually hosting on Windows. And there's there's less of that. It's 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 a more on it's less common. Uh, there's certainly some people who do that. You know, most of them I think are based in Seattle. But yeah, and that's kind of the moment where BB Edit rises to the front of the room, right? Ah, uh, BB Edit. Yeah, love BB Edit. Uh, yeah, no, I still you know as again as the nerd who's who's doing the. Uh, the proxy server for the 
uh, for the kid scavenger hunt, uh, BB Edit is a a great tool in your toolkit because, for instance, even when I'm doing things like amateur traveler, so I'm I'm recording an amateur traveler podcast and I'm listening to the guests speak, and as they're talking about some particular destination. I'm Googling it because I know I'm going to need to do show notes with the links. And so I've got all the links and I'm saving them as bookmarks. Well, then when I'm ready to do the show, I export my bookmarks and I select the set of bookmarks that are for this particular show. And I run a script that I wrote in BB edit that turns those into a, you know, a list of um, the name of the bookmark and then the link and then the space and the name of, you know, just a yeah. simple list that's going to go in the show notes and then when I'm done with that, I run a different different script in BB Edit and turn that into HTML and insert it in my web page. And so, you know, having a tool that knows how to do regular regular expression uh, matching and you know can write scripts and things like that is is a great tool for someone who's a programmer. Just kind of as a utility tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, BB Edit is open on my laptop um, definitely multiple times on a weekly basis. Yeah, we may need to have you back someday to talk about the terminal because I I feel like that that is something a lot of power users struggle with. Like I I've learned terminal commands and I use them. I've got a file full of them that when I need to do something that I just can't do any other way. But in terms of actually working in the terminal, I don't really do that. You know, I I don't know that most people need to uh, do that necessarily. Um, it is a useful tool to have in your toolkit. Um, if you're a programmer, but you know, I don't know that most people these days, uh, even programmers who I hire, I used to ask a question about, you know, if you have this as a log file and it's got all your web logs from your application and you wanted to turn that into a list of, uh, what web pages were hit most often in sorted order and how many times were they hit, you can do that with six different shell commands piped into each other in the terminal yeah, most programmers couldn't answer that question anymore. So um, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. But if you do, if you can't answer it, it's not a bad toolkit to have to just very quickly do things, not necessarily with programming, but just by combining different commands. Now, what about the um, the distinction between web apps and local apps? And I know, again, we're dealing with blurry lines, but there's a lot <laughs> of people that are very opinionated about this. Like, you know, when Apple started the iPhone app store, they really put their flag in the ground saying we want to make local apps for our devices um but now if you look more recently apple's getting way more permissive about plugins and safari and um, it seems to me like there's something going on here what what's your take on this well economics it makes a big factor in that so for instance we did not have a web app uh, or don't have a um sorry a native app for our financial planning software we have uh, basically a responsive design so that it works fine on your iPhone and it works fine on your on your you know tablet and things like that. And with you know only six people in the company and only three programmers or four programmers for three and a half because my my boss you know doesn't always have time to program. You can do an app, but you know once you dedicate one person to your your iPhone app and one person to your Android app, you know minimum, um, it's it's tough to get things done. Where if you do the web app, you know, you can eventually, well, we'll get acquired and then we'll have the money to do the, to do the native app. So a lot of it is just economics. If I could write once and make it work everywhere, um, that is why a lot of people focus on those. It's not necessarily that native apps aren't great, but that they are not necessarily as 
required. And when you think about the amazing apps you use these days, like, you know, going into uh, the Google web tools, uh, there's, sorry, the Google docs and things like that, that are really just web programs. Um, it, it's clear that you can do a lot before you go to native. Um, and when you go to native, then you're worrying about, you know, how many different versions do I have to support? You know, if I'm on, you know, especially like if I'm an Android, how many different versions do I have to deal with? You know, you have less of that on the, on the iPhone, but you know, native apps are great, but you know, we even see that with, you know, is that available on my Mac or is it only available on my iPhone or my iPad? Um, and yet if you do a web app, it's available on all three. And so we'll continue to see the advantage of both. I think, you know, the, the local apps are the native apps are always, I think going to be a little more, uh, responsive potentially. And they're probably going to be some things that you can do better in them than you can in the web app. Um, but you know, we have definitely seen web programming go a lot further. And I think about during the day how few apps I actually use uh, because so many of the things I go to these days are web pages. Um, I think that's it. There are probably fewer apps that I open in a given day than I used to. Well, I mean, you think back to the old PC versus Mac days, you know, which is like in, in hindsight, so ridiculous. I mean, we were all a bunch of people that were nerdy about computers. We were such a segment of small segment of the population. We should have all been friends, right? But man, <laughs> they, those flame wars and the the boards sure, they went sure. after each other. Well, but, you know, hey, I worked on a Windows project at Apple. Uh, you yeah. know, talk about being uh, being thankless. <laughs> so. Yeah, but but you know, the fact is. The, the what killed that fight ultimately was the fact that so much of the work we all do now is right. on the web. You know, it doesn't yeah, I mean, matter. If you're a company and you need to write a proprietary application for you know managing your healthcare connect, you know, uh, records at the hospital or something like that, you really would be foolish not to do that as a web app these days, uh, because you're really having to bet on operating systems and programmings and things like that. Where if you just do it as a web app, it's going to work everywhere. Um, and you know, don't have to worry about, well, can we then support it on the phone? You just have to worry about responsive design. And you guys know what I mean when I say responsive, right? I don't know how nerdy I'm being, uh, but just that this, if you change the size of this window, things will appear and disappear as appropriate to fit on the size of the device. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with people consuming the web on their phone, their tablet and their, you know, 36 inch screen, you need to be able to look good at all, all places. Well, and a number of the, you know, if you go into the Apple store now and you do download a native app, a number of those native apps are actually web apps. Um, They're actually uh, done in a technology that is more web app center, things like uh, react native or something like that. They may be a little less responsive, you know, Apple might not like them quite as well, but it's again easier to develop, and so we'll we'll see some of those that are kind of the hybrid mm-hmm. ones also. So, uh, explain for folks why sometimes using uh, the internet kills the battery in their laptop so fast. <laughs> well, it's a uh, it's it's how many when your application is just sitting there. Is it just sitting there? Is really the is really the question. You know, how active is your application? Is it constantly hitting the internet to find out if there's new data is there's something spinning in there that is uh basically uh waiting for something to change and it's doing an active uh 
ping of that information. I'm trying to trying to put this in English, uh, you know, actively looking for that information. You know, anything that's doing that kind of uh, let me see if there's anything changed that doesn't have because um, often our web protocols make it a little harder to just let me know when something changes. Um, and so there's some portion of your application that is awake even when it's not, you know, even when it seems to be sitting here. Um, and to the extent that that is true, uh, you'll be draining more battery life. You know, that's you're draining your CPU at that point um, or your your power through your through your CPU. And and you can write the same application in ways that are more efficient or less efficient. And that's just a matter of, you know, good programming. And that's true of whatever type of application it is, whether it's mm-hmm. a native app or a web app or whatever. It's just that if it's a web app, you know, it's, it affects my AWS bill, <laughs> not your battery, uh, yeah. is the, is the big difference there. Some people view this, this shift as threatening to Apple, that if everything is just going to be a web app, what makes the Mac or even the iPhone or iPad special? Uh, what do you think about that sort of line of thinking? Um, I think it's silly. I think everything isn't going to be a web app. Um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about it as an Apple lover. Uh, they seem to be doing okay these days, <laughs> especially, you know, if they continue to make some, you know, kick-ass uh, soft hardware uh, that, you know, runs things better. In some ways, I think it helps Apple more than it hurts it because if I'm, you know, typically it used to be if I was a Windows developer and I wrote that application, I'd be writing it for Windows and then you couldn't use it on the Mac at all or you had to use it under emulation. And these days, if Windows, you know, if everybody in the development world were to write as a web app, that would mean it would be available everywhere, and it's a more level playing field. I think Apple does better on a more level playing field. Um, I think they've always had more hard time when, for instance, you know, games is the place where we still see it, right? That those games are available more here or there. Then you know that makes that hardware purchase uh better or worse depending on which where you sit on that divide uh so web apps mean you're in a much more level playing field to the extent that you know they're out there but again i i don't think it's going to be an either or i think there's going to be both chris what browser do you use i'm a chrome guy i've got yeah. you know half a dozen dozen different uh plugins on my chrome i i jump to safari when i'm doing testing occasionally safari unfortunately has a few more quirks uh that we um, it, it used to be that when you, back in the day when you were programming for your app, when you were done with your support for Windows 7, but you hadn't done Windows 6 yet, you were halfway done because there were enough things that were in Internet Explorer 6, rather. Internet Explorer 6 was, you know, so bad that uh, it was basically a tax on the Internet um, for developers and Safari has got a few quirks. It's not it's not nearly like it like Internet Six, but it's got a few quirks that we run into some bugs. So I do have to jump over there. Our my designer runs in Safari all the time, so I get constant feedback with if there's something that's a little different. But most of the time, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I I I could see um, someone doing development work running wanting to run Chrome more. For me, I stick with Safari, frankly, because the battery life is so much better, and you know I'm all in with Apple anyway. But um, uh, one of the complaints that we hear frequently from listeners about Chrome is that when you run Chrome, the battery dies faster. Um, 
uh, Chrome isn't as much of a team player with Apple hardware in terms of preserving battery life. You got any tips for people? Well, you have to remember too, I'm running a web server and a database server <laughs> and sure. some development tools. And uh, it's, my, my laptops are often, you know, plugged in much of the time. Um, but sure. even when they're not, the, you know, the current generation of laptops has pretty good battery life. So um, I do I have any tips? No, honestly, I mean, fewer plugins uh, is, is definitely a thing. But that's the reason I use it is I, you know, <laughs> yeah. have a dozen different plugins on my personal computer. My laptop for work, I think, doesn't have any plugins at all uh, just because, you know, it's a little more locked down. But, um, you know, and, and all the plugins that I have are mostly for, you know, social media or for uh, more content creation sort of things than they are for development. And well, there's a few things that are like, help me measure the space between different devices, you know, different things on the screen so I can see whether I've got my layout right. Cause I often do a lot of UI work. And so if you're trying to get pixel perfect to the design you have, you know, I have a, a few different plugins that I use for that, but mm-hmm. mostly they're for more content creation, more for web programming, uh, web um, content creation. So it's like when you go to the doctor and says, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, well, then don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by what ifs. So what if hiring didn't have to be so hard? What if finding somebody great could be as easy as asking them to apply? Well, what if your dream hiring platform already exists? You need Indeed. It's the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match Assessment and Virtual Interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches the job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. And assessments are really great. Indeed helps star applicants to shine with over 135 assessment tests, ranging from cooking to coding. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is unbelievably powerful, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join more than the 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post. Just go to indeed.com slash MPU. This offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash MPU. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the show. Chris, in addition to uh, all your your work on the web and and uh, your programming, you're also a content creator. Uh, we've talked uh, on the show already mm-hmm. today about the Amateur Traveler podcast. I know you have a couple others as well. Uh, Amateur Traveler is my favorite. I'll have to admit, I, well, I just love you. what you guys do. And let's talk about travel and podcasting and content creation a little bit. Uh, first is obviously that we've had some changes in the world over the last few years and people are starting to travel again. Um, you told me as we were preparing that now you are on a plane about once a month. Uh, these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in part because I've been going back to 
see my daughter as our first grandchild is on the way, but also done, you know, a work trip. We, you know, imagine that I've done two different work trips uh, that, you know, we didn't used to do for a couple of years there. And then one international uh, trip uh, in a couple different bl- travel blogging conferences, the TBEX conferences. Uh, it's nice to get back to those and do those in, in person again. I sure, I'm sure a lot of listeners are starting to contemplate travel again. Uh, mm-hmm. Anything, any advice for the way things have changed and maybe good technologies or, or workflows to get through travel post-COVID? <laughs> I don't uh, think you'd say post-COVID at this point, but you yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know if, you know know if we're I mean? post-COVID yet. We're st- uh, we're, yeah. you know, realistically, we're still losing 300 people a day in the U.S. to COVID. So, um, and, you know, personally, my we've had more family members get COVID this summer than any other time during yep. this. Uh, my uh, my ninety five, almost ninety six year old father got it this summer, but is okay. And my my son and his wife got it. So, I think what I've gotten to definitely into the place of, you know, I've got all my shots, I've got all my boosters, um, I wear a mask when I go indoors because I live in a place that still believes in that. And, um, you know, I do a lot of outdoor dining, but I live in California, so it's, you know, I like the outdoor dining. <laughs> it's, I, I hope we keep it. I, even if nobody gets COVID, I, I, I really want to dine outdoor more. Um, but I think that I think a lot of us have gotten to the place of, you know, take whatever uh, precautions you think are appropriate for me. I'm still wearing masks on planes. I, you know, I don't care what the rules are and things like that. Um, but don't put your life on hold anymore. I think is where some of us have gotten to, you know, ready to ready to get out there. And we've seen that the demand for travel, um, we had at least one day this summer. And I think multiple days where the number of people at U S airports was greater than pre COVID. Um, what we've run into though, is because there were so many people getting, you know, kind of this low grade COVID, which is what we've seen a lot of this year, fortunately, uh, you know, fortunately, because of all the great work that the uh, medical community has done with, you know, treating it and, you know, all the antivirals and those sort of things. Uh, but it still means that, you know, somebody's sick and it's the flight crew and it's the plane, the the captain of the plane and such. So they've had a lot of canceled planes. So if you're thinking about a trip this year, it's a great time for a road trip, except of course, you know, gas being so expensive, but, uh, it, it's been a tough year to fly. Uh, there have been some really bad experiences. There have been so much lost luggage this year that we've seen airlines send empty planes over to go fetch luggage, Wow, uh, which is unheard of. I wasn't Uh, aware of that. Oh yeah, that we saw. Oh, if it was, I'm trying to remember what it was. Delta, you know, sent over a flight to Heathrow to pick up all the luggage that got left behind. Uh, and so it's been a bit of a. Yeah, there, there's no appropriate term that I would use on on Mac Power users for that. It's been bad. <laughs> it's, okay. Uh, this summer, in terms of how things have gone for a lot of international flights, especially. So, you know, it definitely is one of those things where no one comes home and complains that they didn't bring enough. And a lot of people come home and say they pack too much. So this is a great year to learn to deal with a carry-on um, and packing in a carry-on. Um, you do laundry at home, you can do laundry on the road. Um, you know, pack pack clothes that can be washed out in the sink, you know, potentially or or go to a laundromat or something like that. But you don't have to pack something for all your trip. Um you know, have maybe a flight app or trip it or something like that. That's going to tell you when there's a change, uh, in terms of gates and things like that. Um, if you're booking your flights, 
you know, have that information with you because if your flight is canceled, you may have to rebook and it, uh, it's been, yeah, it's been a little bit of a hassle. I, I was, uh, coming home from one of the business trips from flying out of Boston and they, um, just completely screwed up <laughs> trying to figure out. I think that the problem was that they had hot, warm weather conditions and they couldn't take all of us on the flight with all the luggage without doing a fuel stop. But by the time they were making the decision, they took so long to try to make the decision. Do we kick people off the plane or do we make a fuel stop that the crew timed out? The crew now was over the legal limit in terms of how long they could fly. And so, you know, we were basically there another day as with, you know, hours and hours of delay. So it has not been a good year for travel <laughs> as we've gotten back to it. We've, we've gotten back to it um, a little poorly, but uh, when you get there, it's still, it's still worth getting there. Um, mm, workflows have my workflows changed for travel. Not so much. Um, and my travel tech is largely, you know, whatever's on my, my iPhone. Um, I've got one of the two carriers that has international plans. So either Google Fi or in my case, the T-Mobile, when I land in, you know, one of a hundred different international company countries, I've got access to my email and, you know, to the internet while I'm there for no additional charge. And I, I like that. And so, you know, there's a, you know, amazing things you can do when you have internet connections these days, like translation of menus or like looking for hotel rooms when you're trying to get to another place or figuring out where the bus station is and all of those things that we do with maps. And so, you know, the, the iPhone is just a dream device for if we, if we had been thinking about what device we wanted, you know, 20 years ago for travel, we would have come up with half of what the iPhone does. I think, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's even better than we could have imagined. Um, especially, but if you have a data plan, right, if you are connected. And so that connection piece is, I think, uh, important. And if you don't have one of those carriers, you know, getting, when you land, getting a, um, international SIM uh, to put into your phone and then letting people know what your new phone number is uh, makes that happen pretty pretty easily these days. Yeah, I had to get a flight recently and I got into the gate and they delayed me like four hours. And yeah. I think that is just something that's happening a lot more often. And I fortunately... Well, they're, short, I, they're short of crews because of COVID, because they didn't... They stopped training fl- um, pilots when COVID happened because they didn't need as many... And they've had a lot of pilots uh, retire. Uh, just we had a lot that hit retirement age. And so there's going to be a shortage for a while of uh, airplane crews. And then, you know, the COVID has made it just so that it's hard, to, hard for them to predict. You know, that's where we've had a number of problems there. Yeah, when I, when I hit that four-hour delay, um, I, I know this is entitlement, but I have TSA pre-check. I got it years ago, and <laughs> I, I love it, right? But because of that, I can get back through security very quickly. So rather than sit in the terminal for four hours, um, I just left and, you know, went out, dined outside and then came back you know, shortly before it left. And I felt like that was a good move because I always worry about getting sick when you're in the terminal for hours at a time. But, um, yeah, I mean, it depends where you are too and how much space they have. If you're at the gate, obviously yeah. a little more densely and it depends on the airport. See, I yeah. think a lot of airports have gotten to be nicer places to hang out. Um, yeah. but you know, not necessarily nice, not my favorite place to hang out, but uh, nicer than they used to be. But you're also, you know, when you get to your destinations, you're making content for amateur traveler and some right. of your other endeavors. Mm-hmm. One of the products you're using that I've been wanting to talk about on the show now for a long time is Descript. Could you explain what Descript is and how you're using it? 
So Descript is a piece of Elfin magic that can be used to edit podcasts and, and videos. I use it for podcasts uh, and other audio. The I say it's Elfin magic. I mean, it's, it's literally made by the elves who like made the cookies in the trees. It's It's just fascinating to even watch. You load in your content. In my case, I'm loading in uh, two different audio files, the guest and me, because I'm doing an interview show most of the time. And then you press a button and it magically removes all the ums and the ahs and the you knows and the wells and the <laughs> like 400 different ones in a 45 minute uh, show. Um, and it doesn't do that, I'd say 100% accurate, but it does it pretty darn good. I still have to listen through the show, but it also gives you a transcript. And so when you edit the show, you're not editing audio. And, you know, those of us who've edited audio get used to looking at wave, you know, waveforms and saying, well, that must be where they said the. But when you're in Descript, you're editing the the. If they said the twice, you you click on it and you select it and you delete it like you would in a WordPress document. And it then edits the audio and gets rid of that. And I send it's by 99, 98% accurate. So there's occasionally places where it didn't catch that this was a word. Uh, and so you may need to, you know, cut the audio a bit or, or extend it because it cut it too short, but not that much. And so I said, you know, doing a, a level of edit for a show to try and make it really clean without the ums and the ahs and the pauses and the, let me look that up and all those sorts of things. I used to say it would take me about, one hour for 10 minutes of audio. And then I got faster when I was using, I still use uh, Hindenburg and Hindenburg, I can edit at like 1.7 speed. And so I get faster there, but now I'm editing a 45 minute show in about 45 minutes, uh, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, so it's a pretty cool piece of technology. I still use Hindenburg cause I'm putting in the chapters with Hindenburg. So I'll mark where they go. You can put in mark points with, uh, with Descript, although it doesn't carry over into Hindenburg. I then have to look at the time code and, and mark where it is in Hindenburg and then put in the the uh, link and the name of the chapter and the graphic in my case as well. Uh, but yeah, Descript has been a real eye-opener time saver. I actually have stopped using an editor in the show just because it's more reliable for me to do it with Descript and I get it done faster. It also works with video, you know, and it, I haven't on, tried it with video. Yeah. Yeah. And depending on what the video shows, like if the video shows a person's face, I find it jarring. Um, but, yeah. Talking heads know, would be harder. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's just the idea of an edit based on text as opposed to waveforms is kind of the, the big idea that Descript does. And I've heard from a lot of listeners that are are using it as well. I think it's, it's really starting to take off and, it's a very interesting service that is a web app. You know, it's something you do over the internet. Right. No, very, very cool piece of software. Yeah, no, I'm doing some video, but I'm not doing a lot of video for the show. I do video when I'm doing blog posts because the Amateur Traveler is also a blog. Um, shooting almost all video and 90% of my f- photographs these days on the iPhone um, because it's, cause it's there. Because it's good, uh, because you know, because it's uh, got the both the zoom lens now and the wide angle lens. When I'm doing a hotel review, for instance, it's great to have that wide angle and be able to get the hotel the whole hotel review, um, the whole the whole hotel room. Sorry, and then um, also you know doing some panoramas, um, both horizontal and vertical. A lot of people don't think about doing panoramas the other way, but. You know, if you're if you're trying to do something that's a little larger than you can. So, you know, 
I love the iPhone as my input device. Uh, I'm taking my notes on there. I don't carry a paper and pen when I'm doing notes for an interview or something like that. I'm not yet at the point where I'm recording it or transcribing it or anything like that, but I'm not tending to do that level of interview. I'm just trying to capture a few quotes for the article or something like that. Uh, But I discovered, I was telling uh, David before we were recording that I used to carry, I still have an SLR and I carry that when I think I'm going to be using something that I need a really good zoom for. And I was on the top of a jeepney, riding on top of a jeepney in uh, Philippines up by the rice terraces of Batad, and I was filming some video with my iPhone, and a, probably iPhone 7 or something like that at that point, and then was filming some with my expensive SLR, and the stabilization was so much better on the iPhone, I ended up using only that video, and basically at that point stopped shooting video with my SLR. Um, I still have a... a uh, GoPro that I'll use, for instance, for under, underwater photography or something like that, I, which I should have bought before I went to the Galapagos last year, but I bought it just afterwards. But uh, I still like the the GoPro uh, because it's very portable um, and great for that kind of action shots. But um, if I'm not doing underwater, I usually just use the iPhone. It reminds me of those old, uh, maybe not that old, it, it floats around every every few years, you know, a photo of these are all the things you used to need to create, right? And it was a, a camcorder <laughs> and a PC and an audio interface and a still camera. And right. now, you know, you're walking around making world-class content with the phone that you also use to check Twitter. It's astounding. I still have brought an H4, a Zoom H4 along with me on some trips. Um, so for instance, the last time I was in Africa on safari, I have an episode of the amateur traveler on Botswana that I was doing an editor. I was doing an interview of our uh, safari guide on the zoom H four. And that's the only interview I've ever done that was interrupted by a lion. But uh, I was glad I had, you know, a good device for capturing that audio. I don't usually do that on the, the iPhone uh, just because of quality of audio. And you could also throw the recorder at the lion. If you had to. Run. Exactly. Exactly. It came a little too close. <laughs> This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Go to sourcegraph.com for universal code search so you can move fast even in big code databases. So you've hired a brilliant developer. That's great, but now you need to get them onboarded. And if your company is growing, onboarding new developers will be a common occurrence, but it's a big undertaking each time. One of the biggest challenges for new hires is to get them up to speed with the project their team is working on. This can be tricky if the code bases your developers are working on are already large. Thankfully, Sourcegraph makes it easy to move fast, even in those big code bases. Developers know that knowledge is most useful when it's findable. Centralization is helpful, but given the fact that most companies store knowledge in at least two different locations, how do you make knowledge accessible to those that need it? As a code intelligence platform, Sourcegraph gives developers what they need to drive their own learning over time and in different situations. Teams without Sourcegraph need to rely on asking colleagues or reviewing out-of-date documentation, which is cumbersome and time-consuming. But with Sourcegraph, every developer can search across millions of repositories to find specific code, saving time for themselves and everyone else. So when questions do come up, you know it's the big stuff worthy of extra time. Sourcegraph was created to make developers' lives easier, and today they work with leading companies across every industry, including three out of five of the top tech companies, 
plus PayPal, Uber, Plaid, GE, Reddit, and Atlassian. So visit about.sourcegraph.com to learn more. That's about.sourcegraph.com to find out how some of the biggest tech companies in the world use Sourcegraph and to see what it can do for yours. Or click the link in the show notes to let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Our thanks to Sourcegraph for their support of the Mac Power Users and all of FM. So, Chris, we like to close these episodes with some favorites, uh, some apps, services, hardware that maybe we we haven't gotten to mention yet. Does anything come to mind? Oh, there's a few standbys for me. Things like, you know, Jump Cut, uh, which is just a really good clipboard management app. I don't know how I would live without it. Uh, Trip Mode is a cool app for you're on vacation and you have limited access to the internet or you don't want to have all those background processes hitting the internet and trip mode allows you to disable on a process by process basis, which applications can get to your internet. Uh, really great on the Mac text expander. I mean, you guys have talked about it so many times, but you know, let me throw in my two cents that every time somebody sends me a pitch for, can I do a guest post on your blog, which I do allow guest posts, you know, I can type, six characters and send them back my, my guest post guidelines or something like that. And, you know, those sort of things that help me manage my, my email, I use it for a lot, but also every time I start a, an episode of either podcast, you know, I type six letters or something like that. And, and it turns into a template for the, for the blog post. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's just a great app um, to have that. I think I was using a different uh, expander thing. And then you guys talked about te- text expander so much. So I bought it. So, you know, you, you, you owe me that one. <laughs> and then BB edit, we talked about earlier, you know, BB edit is my nerd tool um, yeah. that uh, gives me access to the, basically to have a programmable um, text editor uh, and the ability as a nerd to do a programmable text editor is just pretty cool. And you mentioned TripIt uh, a little bit earlier in the show. Could you go into, to what it provides for you? Sure. Yeah. Actually, we talked about it uh, when I was on the show before a long, long, long time ago. Uh, but uh, TripIt is an app that helps you manage your trip itinerary. And so if you, for instance, get that confirmation email from the hotel or from the flight, you can just forward that to plans at TripIt.com. It looks and sees who it's from and says, oh, Chris has got another a trip going on. And so it puts together an itinerary for you and combines in a, you know, usually an intelligent fashion that, oh, that hotel must be on this same trip because it's in between the, you know, the departure and the return flights. And so you can then from your trip at app, you can see, you know, where all you're going and when, and it'll put it on your calendar and you didn't have to enter it, which is the thing that's pretty fun with that particular application. Then I can give, you know, my wife, access to my trip account and it's like this is where all the trips are and she can have mm-hmm. access to that calendar that's syncing the trip it is syncing to and uh, see where i'm going and where i'm staying and it all just happens pretty pretty much automatically all i have to do is forward an email or two good to take out and that's just the free version uh if you get the paid version then you can get things like uh, changes for flight notifications and things like that but even just the free mm-hmm. version is pretty good technology for years my go-to has been uh, an Apple note per trip with like some PDFs and, and base it in text, which sure doesn't scale super well, but um, I, I've taken, I took uh, a couple of trips this summer for the first time in three years. And sure. Uh, I used it as a time to play with flighty 
which is this flight tracking application that mm-hmm. gives just an unbelievable amount of detail. It's by Ryan Jones. He was behind Weatherline, which sold, I think, in the last couple of years. But it was amazing to me because I've always just used the, you know, whatever airline I'm traveling with, their app, right? And, and of course, sure. I still had those notifications set up from years ago. It was still just on my phone, like dormant. But Flighty would often alert me of, hey, your gate has changed or your incoming flight right. is late faster than the airline would. I was like, I don't know how you guys have this information, but it's incredible. Well, and, and the other thing of flights, the other standby that's still a good app, uh, web-based app, is uh, Seat Guru in terms of which seat to get on the plane. And, and I should disclose that I, I worked on Seat Guru when I was the director of engineering for uh, TripAdvisor's flights. Uh, but it's still a good app, uh, and uh, it I just haven't seen anything else that, that comes quite as close as, as doing that one. Do you think that people need to find something, you know, specific like Flighty or TripIt? I mean, do, do you cringe when you hear me saying, oh, I just stick it all in Apple Notes and hope for the best? I think it's whatever works for you, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I find that it's a lot easier to do it in TripIt um, mm-hmm. for that kind of information. I mean, I, I will have – so – the way I organize things. So when I'm doing a lot of travel, so when I was uh, contracting for and doing con- consulting for about six years, I was working about a third of the year. So I was traveling a whole lot more. And of course doing a lot of sponsored travel because of the podcast and the blog. And so that meant I didn't have one trip in progress. I had, I was planning three, four, five trips at a time. Right. And so at that point having, you know, here's my itinerary here in trip it. And then, you know, I probably my notes in, in uh, Apple Notes also, because I tend to use Apple Notes for a variety of things, both for my engineering uh, notebook, you know, how what commands do I need to run to do that thing again? Um, I used to use Evernote for that, but when I switched to Apple Notes so that it could synchronize between uh, between different computers and, you know, have it on my phone and, and my iPad as well. Uh, but, you know, I'll have some notes in there for the trip as well. But then also in my email, I have a travel folder that has a lot of different sub travel folders, one for each trip so that I can keep track of, you know, okay, for that conference I'm going to, I got this email so that when I'm there, I know when that party is, or, you know, here's the thing that I got from visit California about, Hey, when you're in this area, we'd love to do this with you or something like that. And so, um, my folders for travel tend to be a little more elaborate than most just because I might be coordinating, you know, so many different things at the same time. And you just don't want to mm-hmm. be sit, standing in a place where you need that information. and You don't remember where you put it. Uh, search works. Okay. But it's nice if you can just go right to where it is. Yeah. You mentioned you can share your trip and information with your spouse or whoever you're traveling with. Right. Uh, does exactly. it give you the, I'm just now just asking for my own personal use. This is, this is just Steven exploring a new <laughs> app at this point. Uh, understand. But, but you know, one thing my wife and I like to do, like we, we spend a week in Colorado over the summer and we uh, have always used Trello for like, okay, these are the 15 things we'd like to do. And then as we narrow it down, okay, you know, Monday gets a column, Tuesday gets, what's the collaboration like there? Yeah, not going to replace your Trello board. Doesn't do that. Yeah, there okay. there are some pro versions. Actually, there's a version that you can use for uh, PR people that will help you coordinate. You know, lots of people's different travel when you've, you're doing a press trip or something like that. But really, not the same app as what you'd need for you and your wife doing your Trello board. Gotcha. So yeah, no, for us, that's um, my wife 
for some reason, that is a very analog process for her. She, hmm. she doesn't believe that the trip is planned until she's got her eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with boxes on it with, you know, the different days and drawing her calendar out. Um, everything else is on the, is on the computer, but that for her is when she believes that she's got a trip plan. Fascinating. <laughs> so, hey, it works. I and, guess, you know, I've been married for 40 years, so you got to make her happy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good advice. Okay, so that wraps it up for today. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU for the Mac Power Users. You can find the MPU forums over at talk.macpowerusers.com. Thank you to our sponsors, SaneBox, Text Expander, Indeed, and SourceGraph. Uh, in the More Power Users episode, we're going to be talking about Chris and Apple in the 90s. And uh, otherwise, we'll see you next week. <laughs>